0: Twelve o'clock is proclaimed by Old St. Dunstan's Church. And scarcely have the sounds done echoing throughout the neighbourhood, and scarce has the clock of Lincoln's Inn done chiming in its announcement at the same hour, when Bell Yard, Temple Bar, becomes a scene of commotion. What a scampering of feet is there, what a laughing and talking, what a jostling to be first, and what an immense number of manoeuvres are resorted to by some of the strong to distance others. And mostly from Lincoln's Inn come these persons, young and old, but most certainly a majority of the former, although from neighbouring legal establishments likewise there came not a few. The Temple contributes its numbers, and from the more distant Gray's Inn came a goodly lot. Is it a fire? Is it a fight? Or anything else sufficiently alarming or extraordinary to excite the junior members of the legal profession to such a species of madness? No. It is none of these, nor is there a fat course to be run for, which in the hands of some clever practitioner might become a vested interest. No, the enjoyment is purely one of a physical character. And all the pacing and racing, all this turmoil and trouble, all this pushing, jostling, laughing and shouting, is to see who will get first at Mrs. Lovett's pie shop. Yes, on the left-hand side of Bell Yard. Going down from Carey Street was, at the time we write off, one of the most celebrated shops for the sale of veal and pork pies that ever London produced. High and low, rich and poor resorted to it. Its fame had spread far and wide. It was because the first batch of these pies came up at twelve o'clock that there was such a rush of the legal profession to obtain them. Their fame had spread to great distances. Oh, those delicious pies! There was about them a flavour never surpassed, and rarely equalled. The paste was of the most delicate construction, and impregnated with the aroma of a delicious gravy that defies description, the fat and the lean so artistically mixed up. The counter in Lovett's shop was in the shape of a horseshoe, and it was the custom of the young bloods from the temple in Lincoln's Inn, to sit in a row at its edge, while they partook of the pies, and chatted gaily about one thing and another. There was a mistress, Lovett, but possibly our reader guessed as much, for what but a female hand, and that female, buxom, young, and good-looking, could have ventured upon the production of those pies? Yes, Mrs. Lovett was all that, and every enamoured young scion of the law, as he devoured his pie, pleased himself with the idea that the charming Mrs. Lovett had made that pie especially for him, and that fate or predestination had placed it in his hands. And it was astonishing to see with what impartiality and with what tact the fair pastry-cook bestowed her smiles upon her admirers, so that none could say he was neglected, while it was extremely difficult for any one to say he was preferred. This was pleasant, but at the same time it was provoking to all except Mrs. Lovett in whose favour it got up a kind of excitement that paid extraordinarily well, because some of the young fellows thought that he who consumed the most pies would be in the most likely way to receive the greatest number of smiles from the lady. Acting upon this supposition, some of her more enthusiastic admirers went on consuming the pies until they were almost ready to burst. But there were others, again, of a more philosophic turn of mind, who went for the pies only, and did not care one jot for Mrs. Lovett. These declare that her smile was cold and uncomfortable, that it was upon her lips, but had no place in her heart, that it was the set smile of a ballet dancer, which is about one of the most unmirthful things in existence. Then there were some who went even beyond this, and while they admitted the excellence of the pies, and went every day to partake of them, swore that Mrs. Lovett had quite a sinister aspect, and that they could see what a merely superficial affair her blandishments were, and that there was a lurking devil in her eye, that, if once roused, would be capable of achieving some serious things, and might not be so easily quelled again. By five minutes past twelve, Mrs. Lovett's counter was full, and the savoury steam of the hot pies went out in fragrant clouds into bellyard, being sniffed up by many a poor wretch passing by. "'Why, Tobias Ragg," said a young man, with his mouth full of pie. "'Where have you been since you left Mr. Snow's in paper buildings? "'I haven't seen you for some days.' "'No,' said Tobias. "'I have gone into another line. "'Instead of being a lawyer and helping to shave the clients, "'I am going to shave the lawyers.' A penny pork, if you please, Mrs. Lovett. Ah, who would go without who could get pies like these, eh, Master Cliff? Well, they are good. Of course, we know that, Tobias. Uh, so you're going to be a barber? Yes, I am with Sweeney Todd, the barber of Fleet Street, opposite St. Dunstan's. The deuce you are? Well, I'm going to a party tonight. I must be dressed and shaved. I'll patronise your master. Tobias put his mouth close to the ear of the young lawyer and whispered the one word. "'Don't? What for?' "'Tobias made no answer. "'He merely put a finger to his lips, "'and throwing down his tuppence, "'scampered out of the shop as fast as he could. "'He had only been sent a message "'by Sweeney Todd in the neighbourhood, "'but as he heard the clock strike twelve "'and two penny pieces were lying at the bottom of his pocket, "'it was not in human nature to resist "'running into Lovett's and converting them "'into a pork pie. "'What an odd thing,' "'thought the young lawyer.' before Fleet Street had reached its present importance, and when George Third was young, and the two figures who used to strike the chimes at Old St. Dunstan's Church were in all their glory. There stood close to the sacred edifice a small barber's shop, which was kept by a man of the name of Sweeney Todd, the very same barber to whom Tobias Wragge was apprenticed. How it was that he came by the name of Sweeney, as a Christian appellation, we are at a loss to conceive, but such was his name as might be seen in extremely corpulent yellow letters over his shop-window, by anyone who chose there to look for it. Barbers, by that time in Fleet Street, had not become fashionable, and no more dreamt of calling themselves artists than of taking the tower by storm. Moreover, they were not, as they are now, constantly slaughtering fine, fat bears, and yet, somehow, people had hair on their heads just the same as they have at present, without the aid of that unctuous auxiliary. Moreover, Sweeney Todd, in common with his brethren in those really primitive sorts of times, did not think it at all necessary to have any waxen effigies of humanity in his window, for there was no languishing young lady looking over the left shoulder in order that a profusion of auburn tresses might repose upon her lily neck. And great conquerors and great statesmen were not then, as they are now, held up to public ridicule with dabs of rouge upon their cheeks a quantity of gunpowder scattered in for a beard, and some bristles sticking on end for eyebrows. No, Sweeney Todd was a barber of the old school, and he never thought of glorifying himself on account of any extraneous circumstance. If he had lived in Henry VIII's palace, it would have been all the same to him as Henry VIII's dog kennel, and he would scarcely have believed human nature to be so green as to pay an extra sixpence to be shaven and shorn in any particular locality. A long pole, painted white, with a red stripe curling spirally round it, projected into the street from his doorway, and on one of the panes of glass in his window was presented the following couplet. Easy shaving for a penny, as good as you will find in any. We do not put these lines forth as a specimen of the poetry of the age. They may have been the production of some young Templar, but if they were a little wanting in poetic fire... That was amply made up by the clear and precise manner in which they set forth what they intended. The barber himself was a long, low-jointed, ill-put-together sort of fellow, with an immense mouth and such huge hands and feet that he was, in his way, quite a natural curiosity. And what was more wonderful, considering his trade, there never was seen such a head of hair as Sweeney Todd's. (laughs) We know not what to compare it to. Probably it came nearest to what one might suppose to be the appearance of a thick-set hedge, in which a quantity of small wire had got entangled. In truth, it was the most terrific head of hair. And as Sweeney Todd kept all his combs in it, some said his scissors likewise, when he put his head out of the shop door to see what sort of weather it was, he might have been mistaken for some Indian warrior with a very remarkable head-dress. He had a short, disagreeable kind of unmirthful laugh which came in at all sorts of odd times when nobody else saw anything to laugh at at all, and which sometimes made people start again, especially when they were being shaved, and Sweeney Todd would stop short in that operation to indulge in one of these cachinnatory effusions. It was evident that the remembrance of some very strange and out-of-the-way joke must occasionally flit across him, And then he gave his laugh, but it was so short, so sudden, striking upon the ear for a moment and then gone, that people have been known to look up to the ceiling and on the floor and all round them to know from whence it had come, scarcely supposing it possible that it proceeded from mortal lips. Mr. Todd squinted a little to add to his charms, and so we think that by this time the reader may in his mind's eye see the individual whom we wish to present to him. Some thought him a careless enough, harmless fellow, with not much sense in him, and at times they almost considered he was little cracked. But there were others, again, who shook their heads when they spoke of him, and while they could say nothing to his prejudice except that they certainly considered he was odd, yet when they came to consider what a great crime and misdemeanour it really is in this world to be odd, we shall not be surprised at the ill-odour in which Sweeney Todd was held." But for all that he did a most thriving business, it was so handy for the young students in the temple to pop over to Sweeney Todd's to get their chins new rasped, so that from morning to night he drove a good business, and was evidently a thriving man. And there was only one thing that seemed in any way to detract from the great prudence of Sweeney Todd's character, and that was that he rented a large house, of which he occupied nothing but the shop and the parlour leaving the upper part entirely useless, and obstinately refusing to let it, on any terms, whatever. Such was the state of things A.D. 1785, as regarded Sweeney Dodd. His young apprentice, Tobias Ragg, was returning to his master's shop when he thought he heard from within a strange, shrieking sort of sound. On the impulse of the moment he recoiled a step or two, and then, from some other impulse, He dashed forward at once, and entered the shop. The first object that presented itself to his attention, lying upon a side table, was a hat, with a handsome gold-headed walking cane lying across it. The armchair, in which customers usually sat to be shaved, was vacant, and Sweeney Todd's face was just projected into the shop from the back parlour, wearing a most singular and hideous expression. Well, Tobias, he said, as he advanced, rubbing his great hands together. So you could not resist the charms of Mrs. Lovett's pie shop? (sighs) How does he know? thought Tobias. Yes, sir, I have been to the pie shop, but I didn't stay a minute. Hark ye, Tobias, the only thing I can excuse in the way of a delay upon any errand is for you to get one of Mrs. Lovett's pies. That." I look over so think no more about it (laughs) are they not delicious Tobias yes sir they are but some gentleman seems to have left his hat and stick yes said Sweeney Todd indeed he has and lifting the stick he struck Tobias a blow with it that felled him to the ground listen the first to Tobias Ragg "'what teaches him to make no remarks about what does not concern him. "'You may think what you likes, Tobias, but you shall say only what I likes.' "'I won't endure it,' cried the boy. "'I won't be knocked about in this way. I tell you, sweetie Todd, I won't.' "'Won't? Have you forgotten your poor mother?' "'You say you have power over my mother, but I don't know what it is, "'and I cannot and will not believe it. "'I'll leave you, and come of it what may.' I'll go to sea or anywhere rather than stay in such a place as this. Oh, you will, will you? And Tobias, you and I must come to some explanation. I'll tell you what power I have over your mother, and then perhaps you will be satisfied. Last winter, when the frost had continued 18 weeks, and you and your mother were starving, she was employed to clean out the chambers of a Mr. King in the temple. A cold-hearted, severe man who never forgave anything in all his life. And never will. I remember, said Tobias. We were starving. I owed a whole guinea for rent. But mother borrowed it and paid it. And after that got a situation where she now is. Ah, you think so? The rent was paid. But Tobias, my boy, a word in your ear. She took a silver candlestick from Mr King's chambers to pay it. I knows it. I can prove it. Think on that, Tobias and be discreet. Have mercy upon us, said the boy. They would take her life. Her life, sneered Sweeney Todd. Aye, to be sure they would. They would hang her. Hang her, I say. And now mind if you force me by any conduct of your own to mention this thing, you will be your mother's executioner. <laughs> I had better go and be deputy hangman at once and turn her off. <sighs> Horrible! Horrible! Oh, you don't like that. <laughs> Indeed, that don't suit you. You will remember, Tobias Rang, that you are now my apprentices, and that you have of me had board, washing and lodging, with the exception that you don't sleep here, that you take your meals at home, and that your mother does your washing. As for lodging... You lodge here, you know, very comfortably in the shop all day. Now are you not a thankful dog? Yes, sir, said the boy, timidly. Tis well. Now go and put that and stick in yonder cupboard. Hmm. The young apprentice did as he was told. You ought to be happy, you know. With me, you will acquire a first-rate profession, and quite as good as the law, which your mother tells me she would have put you to, only that a little weakness of the ed piece unqualified you, <laughs> and now Tobias, listen to me, and treasure up every word I says. Yes, sir. I'll cut your throat from ear to ear if you repeat one word of what passes in this shop. You understand me? I'll cut your throat. <sighs> Sweeney Todd rose from his seat, and opening his huge mouth, he looked at the boy for a minute or two in silence, as if he fully intended swallowing him, but had not quite made up his mind where to begin. At that same hour that the above scene was taking place, a tall, gentlemanly-looking man, accompanied by an immense Newfoundland dog, might be seen wending his way down Fleet Street. Suddenly he stopped in front of a barber's shop, and after a word or two to his dog, which quietly seated itself outside, he entered. Now, Lieutenant Thornhill, for such was the gentleman's name, was a brave man, but brave as he was, a slight feeling of uneasiness crept over him as he gazed upon the face of Sweeney Todd the barber, who, with upraised hand, appeared in the act of striking a boy who was crouched in the corner. The ferocious look of Sweeney Todd at that moment was indeed appalling, but it was instantly changed into a smile on perceiving the stranger. Excuse me, sir. I was just endeavouring to impress upon the boy how much better it would be for his future welfare if he were to take pattern by me and devote his few spare hours in reading the Bible. (laughs) Take a seat, sir. Thornhill seated himself in a large armchair, Todd stropping his razor, and darting his serpent-like orbs on the customer. One minute, sir, said Todd, with a bland smile. I cannot but fail to notice you appear to be somewhat bronzed. Have you perchance been sailing under sunny skies? Yes, I have, and have only now lately come up the river from an Indian voyage. By the by, can you inform me where a person named Oakley, a spectacle-maker, resides? It is somewhere in this neighbourhood. I have a small packet, which has been entrusted to me to deliver to one of the family. At this, Todd's eyes sparkled. Sir, you could not have asked a better person than myself. Then turning to the boy, he said, Here, dear boy, take tuppence, go to Mrs. Lovett's and buy two of those nice pies that you enjoy so much. Don't hurry back. Say half an hour. Todd chased the boy out of the shop and Thornhill mildly reminded him that he wished to be shaved, and that he was in some haste having an errand to run. "'Of course, sir, you want to be shaved, and it is well you have come here, for there ain't a shaving shop in the city of London,' though I says it myself. "'Never thinks of polishing anybody off as I do.' "'Very good.' "'Now, sir,' continued Todd, as he mixed up a lather, "'the man you seek is John Oakley, the spectacle-maker in Fall Street.' He keeps a little shop with two windows. And he has a daughter named Joanna that the young bloods call the Flower of Four Street. <sighs> oh, poor thing, do they? Now, confound you. What are you laughing at? What do you mean by that? Uh, didn't you say, oh, poor thing? Just turn your head a little on one side, sir. That'll do. Damn it. What do you mean by putting the brush in my mouth? Oh, forgive me, sir. As your beard is so strong, I'll just step into the next room for another razor. Sweeney Todd walked into the back parlour and closed the door. There was a strange sound, suddenly compounded of a rushing noise, and then a heavy blow. Immediately after which, Sweeney Todd emerged from his parlour and, folding his arms, he looked upon the vacant chair where his customer had been seated. But the customer was gone, leaving not the slightest trace of his presence behind, except his hat. Thornhill had disappeared. Or oh, that?' said Todd, for I had a noise, and there was, indeed, a loud barking and scratching at the door. Todd, with ghastly face, peered over the shop blind, and, perceiving the man's dog, seized a stout cudgel with the intention of inflicting summary vengeance and opening the door for that purpose, he was instantly capsized by the noble animal who bounded into the shop. The dog, after sniffing in every hole and corner, set up a dismal howl. Todd, who detested dogs, and had in the meantime fastened himself in his room, staggered back in terror as he saw the dog seize Thornhill's hat and rush out with it into the street. The next day, and the earliest dawn of morning was glistening on the masts, the cordage and sails of a fleet of vessels lying below Sheerness, over the taffrail of one, in particular a large size merchantman which had been trading in the Indian seas. Two men were leaning. One of them was the captain of the vessel, and the other a passenger, Colonel Jeffrey, who intended leaving that morning. They were engaged in earnest conversation, and the captain, as he shaded his eyes with his hand, and looked along the surface of the river, said, in reply to some observation of his companion, "'I'll order my boat the moment Lieutenant Thornhill comes on board. I call him Lieutenant, although I have no right to do so, because he has held that rank in the King's service, but when Young was cashiered for fighting a duel with his superior officer. "'And the service has lost a good officer,' said the other. "'Oh, it has indeed. Uh, A braver man never stepped.' "'nor a better officer, but you see they have certain rules in the service "'and everything is sacrificed to maintain them. "'I can't think what keeps him. "'He went yesterday afternoon and said he would pull up to the temple stairs "'because he wanted to call on somebody by the waterside, "'and after that he was going to the city to transact some business of his own. "'And that would have brought him nearer here, you see.' "'He's coming,' said the other. "'Well, what makes you think that?' "'Because I see his dog.' don't you see? Swimming in the water, towards the ship. "'I cannot imagine. I can see the dog, certainly, but I can't see Thornhill, nor is there any boat at hand. I, "'I know not what to make of it. Do you know, my mind misgives me that something has happened amiss. "'Poor dog seems exhausted.' "'Then addressing the crew, he shouted, "'Lend a hand there to Mr. Thornhill's dog, some of you!' "'And in a suppressed voice he said to his companion, "'Why, look!' "'It's a hat he has in his mouth.' "'The dog made towards the vessel, "'and as with the assistance of the seamen he reached the deck, "'he sank down upon it in a state of exhaustion, "'with the hat still in his grasp. "'As the animal lay panting upon the deck, "'the sailors looked at each other in amazement, "'and there was but one opinion among them all now, "'and that was that something very serious "'had happened to Mr. Thornhill.' "'I dread,' said the captain. "'An explanation of this occurrence.' What on earth can it mean? That's Thornhill's hat, and here is Hector. Give the dog some meat and drink directly, he seems thoroughly exhausted. The dog ate sparingly of some food that was put before him, and then, seizing the hat again in his mouth, he stood by the side of the ship and howled piteously. Then he put down the hat for a moment, and, walking up to the captain, he pulled him by the skirt of his coat. You understand him, said the captain to the passenger. "'Something has happened to Thornhill, I'll be bound, "'and you see the object of the dog is to get me to follow him "'to see what it's about.' "'Think you, sir?' "'It is a warning, if it be such a all, "'that I should not be inclined to neglect, "'and if you will follow the dog, I will so accompany you. "'There may be more in it than we think of "'when we look how anxious the poor beast is.' "'The captain ordered a boat to be launched at once, "'and manned by four stout rowers "'to proceed up the river towards the temple stairs, "'where Hector's master had expressed his intention of proceeding.' and when the faithful animal saw the direction in which they were going, he lay down in the bottom of the boat perfectly satisfied, and gave himself up to that repose of which he was evidently so much in need. The tide was running up, and that Thornhill had not saved the turn of it by dropping down earlier to the vessel was one of the things that surprised the captain. However, they soon reached the temple. The dog, who until then had seemed to be asleep, suddenly sprang up, and, seizing the hat again in its mouth, rushed on shore, and was closely followed by the captain and colonel. The dog led them through the temple with great rapidity, pursuing with admirable sagacity the precise path that his master had taken towards the entrance to the temple in Fleet Street, opposite Chancery Lane. Darting across the road, then, he stopped with a low growl at the shop of Sweeney Todd, a proceeding which very much surprised those who followed him and caused them to pause to hold a consultation ere they proceeded further. While this was proceeding, Todd suddenly opened the door and aimed a blow at the dog with an iron bar, which the latter dexterously avoided. But not that the door was suddenly closed again, he would have made Sweeney Todd regret such an interference. "'You must inquire into this,' said the captain. "'There seems to be a mutual ill-will between that man and the dog.' They both tried to enter the barber's shop, but it was fast on the inside, and after repeated knockings, Todd called from within, saying, I won't open the door while that dog is there. He is mad, or he has a spite against me. I don't know nor care which. It's a fact. That's all I'm aware of. I will undertake, said the captain, that the dogs shall do you no harm, but open the door for him we must come, and will. I will take your promise, said Sweeney Todd, but mind you keep it or I shall protect myself and take the creature's life. So if you value it, you had better hold it fast. The captain pacified Hector as well as he could, and likewise tied one end of a silk handkerchief round his neck, and held the other firmly in his grasp, after which Todd, who seemed to have some means from within of seeing what was going on, opened the door and admitted his visitors. Well, gentlemen, shaved or cut or dressed, I am at your service which shall I begin with? The dog never took his eyes off Todd, but kept up a low growl from the first moment of his entrance. That's rather a remarkable circumstance, said the captain, but this is a very sagacious dog, you see, and he belongs to a friend of ours, who most unaccountably has disappeared. Has he really? said Todd, and what is it you require of me? We want to know if anyone having the appearance of an officer in the Navy came to your shop yesterday. I can't say as there was, replied the barber. In fact, trade has been rather dull of late. Law, sir, said Tobias. You forget the seafaring gentleman what come in. You know, sir. So I do, said Todd. Will you excuse me a moment, gentlemen? Tobias, my lad. I just need you to lend me a hand in the parlour. Tobias followed Todd very unsuspectingly into the parlour, but when they got there and the door was closed, the barber sprang upon him like an enraged tiger, and grappling him by the throat, he gave his head such a succession of knocks against the wainscot that the captain and the colonel must have thought that some carpenter was at work. Then he tore a handful of his hair out, after which he twisted him round and dealt him such a kick "'that he was flung sprawling into the corner of the room, "'and then, without a word, the barber walked out again to his customers "'and bolted his parlour door on the outside, "'leaving Tobias to digest the usage he had received at his leisure, "'and in the best way he could. "'Todd returned to his visitors. "'Yes, your friend is a rather good-looking man, though, "'weather-beaten with bright blue eyes and rather fair hair. "'Yes,' Yes, the same. I remember now. To be sure he came here and I shaved him and polished him off. What do you mean by polishing him off? Brushed him up a bit and made him tidy. He said he had got somewhere to go in the city and asked me the address of a Mr Oakley, a spectacle maker. I gave it to him and then he went away. But as I was standing at my door about five minutes afterwards, it seemed to me as well as I could see the distance. That he got into some row near the market did this dog come with him a dog came with him but whether it was that dog or not i don't know and that's all you know of him he never spoke a truer word in your life said sweeney todd as he gently stropped a razor upon his great horny hand this seemed something like a complete fix and the captain looked at colonel jeffrey and the Colonel at the Captain for some moments in complete silence. The dog had watched the countenances of all parties during the brief dialogue, and twice or thrice he had interrupted it by a strange, howling cry. "'I'll tell you what it is,' said the barber. "'If that beast stays here, I'll be the death of him. "'I hate dogs, detests them, and I'll tell you as I told you before, "'if you value him at all, you'll keep him away from me.' (sighs) You say you directed the person you described to us where to find a spectacle-maker named Oakley. We happen to know that he was going in search of such a person, and as he had property of value about him, we will go there and ascertain if he reached his destination. It is in 4th Street. You cannot miss it. The dog, when he saw they were about to leave, grew furious, and it was with the greatest difficulty they succeeded by main force in getting him out of the shop. But he contrived to get free of them, and darting back he sat down at Sweeney Todd's door, howling most piteously. They had no resource but to leave him, intending fully to call as they came back from Mr Oakley's, and as they looked behind them, they saw that Hector was collecting a crowd round the barber's door. They walked on until they reached the spectacle-makers. There they paused, for they all of a sudden recollected that the mission Mr Thornhill had to execute there was of a very delicate nature, and one by no means to be likely executed or even so much as mentioned, probably, in the hearing of Mrs. Oakley. "'We must not be so hasty,' said the Colonel. "'But what am I to do? I sail to-night, and at least I have to go round to Liverpool with my vessel. Do not then call at Mr. Oakley's at all at present, but leave me to ascertain the fact quietly and secretly. My, My anxiety for Thornhill will scarcely permit me to do so, but I suppose I must.' You may depend upon me, but that I know he set his heart upon performing the message he had to deliver, I should recommend that we at once get into this home of Mr. Oakley's, only that the fear of compromising the young lady, who is in the case, and who will have quite enough to bear, poor thing, of her own grief, restrains me. After some more conversation of a similar nature, they decided that this should be the plan adopted. Retracing their steps, they found that Hector would not move an inch from the barber's door, There he sat, with the hat by his side, exhibiting occasionally a formidable row of teeth, when anybody showed a disposition to touch it. But who shall describe the anger of Sweeney Todd when he found that he was likely to be so beleaguered? He doubted if, upon the arrival of the first customer to his shop, the dog might dart in and take him by storm. But that apprehension went off at last, when a young gallant came from the temple to have his hair dressed, and the dog allowed him to pass in and out unmolested without making any attempt to follow him. This was something, at all events, but whether or not it ensured Sweeney Todd's personal safety when he himself should come out, was quite another matter. It was an experiment, however, which he must try. So, after a time, he thought he might try the experiment, and that it would be best done when there were plenty of people there, because if the dog assaulted him, he would have an excuse for any amount of violence he might think proper to use upon the occasion. It took some time, however, to screw his courage to the sticking-place, but at length, muttering deep curses between his clenched teeth, he made his way to the door and carried in his hand a long knife, which he thought a more efficient weapon against the dog's teeth than the iron bludgeon he had formerly used. "'I hope he will attack me,' said Todd to himself. But Tobias heard him, and after devoutly in his own mind, wishing that the dog would actually devour Sweeney, said aloud, "'Oh, dear, sir!' You don't wish that, I'm sure. Who told you what I wished or what I did not? Remember, Tobias, and keep your own counsel, or it will be the worst for you, and your mother too. Remember that. Then the barber went cautiously out of his shop door. We cannot pretend to account for why it was so, but as faithful recorders of facts, we have to state that Hector did not fly at him. But with a melancholy and subdued expression of countenance, he looked up in the face of Sweeney Todd, Then he whined, piteously, as if he would have said, "'Give me my master, and I will forgive you all that you have done. Give me back my beloved master, and you shall see that I am neither revengeful nor ferocious.' This kind of expression was as legibly written in the poor creature's countenance as if he had uttered the words. This was what Sweeney Todd certainly did not expect, and as he looked in the faces of the people who were around, he felt quite convinced that it would not be the most prudent thing in the world.' to interfere with the dog in any way that savoured of violence. Where's the dog's master? said one. Ah, where indeed? said Todd. I should not wonder if he had come to a foul end. But I say, old soapsuds, cried a boy, the dog says you did it. (laughs) There was a general laugh, but the barber was by no means disconcerted. He shortly replied, Does he? He is mistaken, then. Sweeney Todd had no desire to enter into anything like a controversy with people. Instead, he turned again and entered his own shop, in a distant corner of which he sat down, and folding his great gaunt-looking arms over his chest, he riveted his eyes on the door, and if we may judge from the expression of his countenance, his thoughts were not of a pleasant anticipatory character, and that the man sought any excuse to commit some terrible act of violence. Indeed, now and then he gave a grin, as may well have sat on the features of a demon. Underground, there is a cellar of vast extent, and of dim and sepulchral aspect. Some rough red tiles are laid upon the floor, and pieces of flint and large jagged stones have been hammered into the earthen walls to strengthen them while here and there rough huge pillars made by beams of timber rise perpendicularly from the floor and prop large flat pieces of wood against the ceiling to support it. Here and there gleaming lights seem to be peeping out from furnaces, and there is a strange hissing simmering sound going on, while the whole air is impregnated with a rich and savoury vapour. This is Lovett's Pie Manufactory beneath the pavement of Bell Yard and at this time a night-batch of some thousands is being made for the purpose of being sent by carts the first thing in the morning all over the suburbs of London. By the earliest dawn of day a crowd of itinerant hawkers of pies would make their appearance, carrying off a large quantity to regular customers who had them daily, and no more thought of being without them than of forbidding the milkman or the baker to call at their residences. It will be seen, and understood, therefore, that the retail part of Mrs. Lovett's business, which took place principally between the hours of twelve and one, was by no means the most important or profitable portion of a concern which was really of immense magnitude, and which brought in a large yearly income. To stand in the cellar, when this immense manufacture of what at first sight would appear such a trivial article was carried on, and to look about as far as the eye could reach, was by no means to have a sufficient idea of the extent of the place, for there were as many doors in different directions, and singular low-arched entrances to different vaults, which all appeared as black as midnight, that one might almost suppose the inhabitants of all the surrounding neighbourhood had, by common consent, given up their cellars to Lovett's pie factory. There is but one miserable light, except the occasional fitful glare that comes from the ovens where the pies are stewing, hissing, and spluttering in their own luscious gravy. There is but one man, too, throughout all the place, and he is sitting on a low three-legged stool in one corner, with his head resting upon his hands and gently rocking to and fro as he utters scarcely audible moans. He is but lightly clad, In fact, he seems to have but little on him except a shirt and a pair of loose canvas trousers. The sleeves of the former are turned up beyond his elbows, and on his head he has a white nightcap. It seems astonishing that such a man, even with the assistance of Mrs. Lovett, could make so many pies as required in a day. But then, system does wonders, and in those cellars there are various mechanical contrivances for kneading the dough, chopping up the meat, etc., which greatly reduced the labour. But what a miserable object is that man! a sad and soul-stricken wretch he looks. His face is pale and haggard, his eyes deeply sunken, and as he removes his hands from before his visage and looks about him, a more perfect picture of horror could not have been found. I must leave tonight, he said in coarse accents. I must leave tonight, I know too much. My brain is full of horrors. I have not slept now for five nights, nor dare I eat anything but the raw flour. I will we'll leave tonight if they do not watch me too closely. Oh, if I could but get into the streets, if I could but once again breathe the fresh air. What's that? I I heard a noise. He rose and stood, trembling and listening, but. All was still, save the simmering and hissing of the pies. And then he resumed his seat with a deep sigh. All the doors fastened upon me. He said, What can it mean? It's very horrible and my heart dies within me. Six weeks only have I been here. Only six weeks. I was starving before I came. Alas, alas, how much better to have starved. I should have been dead before now, and spared all this agony. "'Skinner?' cried a voice, and it was a female one. "'Skinner? How long will the ovens be?' "'A quarter of an hour. Quarter of an hour, Mrs. Lovett. God help me.' "'What is that you say?' "'I said, God help me. Surely a man may say that without offence. A door slammed shut, and the miserable man was alone again. How strangely he said. On this night my thoughts go back to early days and to what I once was. The pleasant scenes of my youth recur to me. I see again the ivy-mantled porch, and the pleasant village green. I hear again the merry ringing laughter of my playmates, and there in my mind's eye appears to me the bubbling stream, and the ancient mill, the old mansion-house with its tall turrets and its air of silent grandeur. I hear the music of the birds, and the winds making rough melody among the trees. It is very strange that all those sights and sounds should come back to me at such a time as this, as if just to remind me what a wretch I am. He was silent for a few moments, during which he trembled with emotion. Then he spoke again, saying, Thus the forms of those whom I once knew, and many of whom have gone already to the silent tomb, appear to come thronging round me. They bend their eyes momentarily upon me, and with settled expressions show acutely the sympathy they feel for me. I see her, too, who first in my bosom lit up the flame of soft affection. I see her gliding past me like the dim vision of a dream, indistinct but beautiful, no more than a shadow, yet to me most palpable. What am I now? What am I now? He resumed his former position, with his head resting upon his hands. He rocked himself slowly to and fro, uttering those moans of a tortured spirit which we have before noticed. But, see, one of the small arch doors opened. In the gloom of those vaults, and a man in a stooping posture creeps in. A half-mask is upon his face and he wears a cloak, but both his hands are at liberty. In one of them he carries a double-headed hammer with a powerful handle of about 10 inches in length. He has probably come out of a darker place than the one into which he now so cautiously creeps, for he shades the light from his eyes as if it were suddenly rather too much for him. And then he looks cautiously round the vault until he sees the crouched-up figure of the man whose duty it is to attend to the ovens. From that moment he looks at nothing else, but advances towards him steadily and cautiously. It is evident that great secrecy is his object, for he is walking on his stocking cells only, and it is impossible to hear the slightest sounds of his footsteps. Nearer and nearer he comes, so slowly, and yet so surely towards him, who still keeps up the low moaning sound, indicative of mental anguish. Now he is close to him, and he bends over him for a moment with a look of fiendish malice. It is a look which, despite his mask, glances full from his eyes. And then, grasping the hammer tightly in both hands, he raises it slowly above his head, and gives it a swinging motion through the air. There is no knowing what induced the man that was crouching on the stool to rise at that very moment, but he did so, and paced about with great quickness. A sudden shriek burst from his lips as he beheld so terrific an apparition before him. But before he could repeat the word, the hammer descended, crushing into his skull, and he fell lifeless, without a moan. You have been listening to part one of Sweeney Todd. The story will be continued... Subscribe to Encrypted Classic Horror and never miss an episode. Until next time, sweet dreams.